welcome to the Anishinaabe History Podcast. I'm Chris Waite. Today we're going back to the year 1907. Wilfrid Laurier was Prime Minister of Canada. It was in this year that deficiencies were being pointed out regarding Indian residential schools by government medical inspector P.H. Bryce. The calls for action would go unheeded for decades. In Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada, in September of 1907, anti-Asian sentiment exploded into riots that lasted several days. Blatantly racist laws specifically targeted people of Asian heritage. So did rioters. No one was killed, but there was much damage. In the United States, Indian motorcycles had recently introduced the V-twin style engine, meaning some of their bikes would now have two pistons instead of just one. Their first twin-cylinder engine put out a whopping 3.5 horsepower. Demand for Indian motorcycles was so strong that the company built themselves a new factory within which engines could now be made in-house. Also in the United States in 1907, a man named Charles Curtis was elected as Senator of Kansas. Curtis was an acknowledged member of the Kaw Nation. Although he wasn't a full-blooded native, so to speak, he was publicly acknowledged by his American colleagues to be of non-European heritage. That being said, it should be noted that his father was English, Scot, and Welsh, and his mother was also of mixed heritage. Ka, Osagi, Potawatomi, and French. Charles Curtis was born in Kansas Territory in 1860. He was a lawyer and got into politics in his 30s. He was successful in politics. By 1928, Charles Curtis was elected as the 31st Vice President of the United States when he campaigned with his running mate, Herbert Hoover. Charles Curtis lent his name to the Curtis Act of 1898, which was an amendment to the Dawes Act and effectively took control of 90 million acres of land from the five civilized tribes of Indian Territory, the Cherokee, Choctaw, Chickasaw, Muscogee, and Seminole peoples of what is now known as Oklahoma. Not quite a decade later, in 1907, at the northern end of Lake Winnipeg near Norway House, Manitoba, Ojibwe and Cree shamans were still practicing their ancient traditions. Indeed, the Anishinaabe people in this remote northern area were still very much insulated from European material and ideas until the very late 19th and early 20th century. Norway House itself is a remote place. It is an 800-kilometer drive north from Winnipeg. By canoe, a person would have to travel over 400 kilometers to get to Norway House, from Winnipeg. And yet, despite the remoteness of Norway House, there were several hundred people who inhabited the region and beyond. It was not an empty land. But the further away from European civilization, the more traditional were the people, and traditionally the Anishinaabe people had an ancient religion of shamanism. In simplest terms, shamanism is the belief in and utilization of non-human helpers. Drumming and singing are prayers to individual magical beings or directly to the Creator, otherwise known as the Great Spirit, Kichimanitu. Back in the time of the fur trade, across mirror calm lakes on auspicious nights, drum songs could be heard. Different songs mean different things and there are different ceremonies that shamans might undertake. 
In fact, there were different shamans for different things. For instance, to get help from the turtle spirit Mekanak, a person might consult a tent shaker or Jizagan to act as an intermediary to the spirit world. There were springtime ceremony shamans, the Wabanan, who would lead the celebrations for the end of winter. There were the initiated shamans, the Midawiwin, who would meet secretly to conduct sacred ceremonies. And there were even skinwalkers whose powerful and sometimes evil magic was to be feared. Similarly, some shamans would have been asked to deal with malevolent spirits such as Wendigos. A Wendigo is a cannibal, a human whose heart has turned to, into ice. Possession by Wendigo spirit is like the idea of possession by evil spirits in the Christian faith. For example, The Exorcist, a novel and subsequent film released in the early 1970s, was William Peter Blatty's narrative of demonic possession. It's the power of Christ that compels you. The power of Christ 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 compels you. In the summer of 1907, just over 60 years before the release of The Exorcist, a family of hunters led by their shaman father near Norway House, Manitoba, were charged and convicted of murder for attempting to do what priests would do as exorcists. To put it simply, it was a clash of cultures. But in more specific terms, it was the religion of Anishinaabek shamanism under attack by the Canadian justice system. What happened? A man named Jack Fiddler had been asked during a previous winter to commit a daunting task on behalf of a family and their well-being. Fiddler was asked by his community, in his role as a leader, elder, and shaman, to dispatch evil possession. Defeating a Wendigo did not always result in the death of the Wendigo. Jack Fiddler had defeated a previous Wendigo using a whip. Fiddler whipped a man who was turning into a Wendigo and said to him repeatedly, If you turn into a Wendigo, I will kill you. After being whipped like this, the man eventually calmed down and returned to normal. Another time, Jack Fiddler had to defeat a Wendigo using whiskey. He fed the crazed person enough whiskey to incapacitate him. Other times when ruthless intervention like whipping a man who is losing control of himself or chemical incapacitation is unavailable, the family or community would decide to take even more drastic measures. By this I mean killing the Wendigo. But for this particular instance, in 1907, the long arm of Canadian justice found its way to where no white man had been before. News of the death of a woman by strangulation amongst the uncivilized Indians spread from Norway House to Winnipeg, where Canadian officials decided to enforce their law upon Chief Jack Fiddler. Fiddler and his people had not signed on to any treaty at this time. Their traditions and land were still unsurrendered but Canadian soldiers marched deep into the forest to apprehend the man accused of murder. The soldiers worked hard to get to the Fiddler encampment from Norway House. When the red-coated soldiers arrived at the camp, they were happily greeted by the Fiddler clan, many of whom had never seen a white man before, but nonetheless had respect for the red uniform. When Jack Fiddler met with the soldiers, he thought they had come to discuss a treaty 
but he was mistaken. The soldiers had marched all that way to arrest him. Fiddler was incredulous. How could these white men come onto Anishinaabek land and accuse him of murder and threaten arrest? Fiddler said to the officer in charge, I have twenty men here with me. What's stopping me from attacking your soldiers? The officer responded, If you kill us, others will replace us and you will have offended Canada. Canada would have to respond with more force. The officer and Fiddler discussed the killing. The officer asked Fiddler if he understood the charges. Eventually, Fiddler accepted the officer's argument rationalizing the death as a murder. With the white man's reality now weighing on his conscience, Jack Fiddler agreed to be taken under arrest to Norway House. For a hundred days, Jack Fiddler and three of his accomplices in the death of the woman accused of being a Wendigo languished in jail because there had been no court date set for the trial. The elderly Jack Fiddler did not fare well in the jail conditions. On the 101st day, while making his morning fire for his breakfast, under watch of the prison guard, Jack Fiddler managed to slip away undetected. His body was found a few hours later. He had hanged himself. But Jack's death wasn't the end of the trial. His brother Joseph, who had helped in the death of the accused Windigo, would have to defend himself. But his reality and the reality of the Canadian lawmakers did not overlap. In the eyes of the Anishinaabek, a Windigo is a very disruptive force. In close-knit groups where cooperation and division of labor is dependent upon individual strengths, any threat to the daily sustenance system can quickly become a deadly threat. For example, in the winter, Anishinaabe people would break off into smaller family groups to search for game. In the summer, people would gather at productive river and lake spots. But in the winter, when the rivers and lakes were frozen and the sturgeon were not spawning, the people needed to be in smaller groups to more efficiently make do with the relative scarcity of game. The winters of the early 1900s had been harsh and the fur-bearing animals depleted. One family felt the brunt of hardship one extremely difficult winter and a woman had lost her mind. She then became unable to take care of her family. Her irrational behavior threatened the well-being of her family, who couldn't leave their camp to hunt for fear of the woman hurting children or herself. When food was scarce during a bad winter and a member of the community threatened the very survival of that community during a desperate time, what was to be done? Jack Fiddler had been asked by the family to do the unthinkable. Ultimately, he paid for his deeds in jail and by his own hand. His brother Joseph would end up being convicted of murder. Ironically, Joseph's sentence was execution by hanging. Joseph was not to be hanged, however. His sentence would be commuted to life in prison, and he was then transferred to Stony Mountain Penitentiary. It was a transitional moment in Anishinaabe history, a moment when our worldview had become criminalized. That's all for today's episode. Stay tuned for more episodes in the future. I'm Chris Waite, and this has been the Anishinaabe History Podcast.